Greetings! If you've come to hear Grade A chat about advertising media marketing, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I'm your host today, Omar Oaks, Campaign's media and tech editor. Joining me today are two of the biggest brains in the UK media industry, namely Twitter's UK Director of Planning, David Wilding, and Vera Budimlia, who is Chief Strategy Officer of WPP media agency Wavemaker. They are both media strategists, and I wanted to talk to them for this episode because there's a lot going on this year in media in terms of changing behaviours during the pandemic, of course. Uh, Twitter has done a lot of work on unpicking that, And we'll be discussing how nearly a year of living in pandemic times is impacting on our behaviour, how we've changed. Plus, how are media agencies going to make money from brands over the next decade if everything is becoming about e-commerce, online and being the best at using data? Wavemaker has some interesting ideas about that. But first, some housekeeping. Uh, Next Wednesday, December 9th, I'll be hosting the Campaign Publishing Summit. If you're a media company, a media owner, media agency, or involved in the publishing industry in any way, you're going to want to check that out. Um, We've worked pretty hard to make it an interesting lineup. And we've got people from The Economist, The FT, Stylist Group, Mail Online, Pubmatic, TTG Media, shall I go on? Okay, News UK, The Telegraph, and um, Grazia, the editor of Grazia, will be doing the keynote. And so that's next Wednesday. Um, of course, it will be online. Just go to campaignlive.co.uk slash publishing hyphen summit for more information. Or, you know, just Google campaign publishing summit. And we've also just launched the Campaign Tech Awards for 2021. Uh, We've launched some new categories for 2021 that I'm really proud of. Um, One of them is a new tech diversity advocate category. Uh, You know, frankly, tech in the UK, much like everywhere, is far too pale, male and stale. And it has to change, frankly. And so what we wanted to do is recognise people in the industry that are making this change happen. Um, So that's very important. Um, We've also launched a new category award called Best Response to Change Using Tech, which specifically recognises campaigns that have had to adapt quickly to change. Um, Could it be there was some sort of crisis in 2020 that forced a brand to stop in its tracks and pivot 90 degrees in another direction? I think there could be. Um, So that's an important category as well. But do check out campaigntechawards.com and find out how to enter. Um, Before we go to our panel, um, just mention that um, Ben Londersborough, who helped me set up the campaign podcast um, this year in a new format, Um, Ben sadly no longer with us at Haymarket, he's moved on to Bauer Media and just want to say, Ben, thank you so much um, for being uh, not just a great editor and producer of this podcast, um, but someone who has helped me come up with lots of interesting ideas, how to take this show forward and we will miss you. Uh, Do check out um, his previous episode where he interviewed um it was a very good episode where he interviewed um some young creatives who were trying to get a job in the industry and i'll put a link to that in the show notes okay everyone uh, please do enjoy today's show 
So joining me today on the campaign podcast, first of all, is David Wilding, Twitter's director of planning in the UK. Uh, I think it's fair to say he's one of the best known and well-regarded media strategists in the UK, having joined Twitter in 2014 as its first and only, so far anyway, planning director in the UK. Uh, He previously spent several years in planning roles at media agencies such as WP's Mindshare for several years and was head of planning at Omnicom's PhD and became a regular fixture in Campaign Magazine's top 10 media planners list. And just to embarrass you, here's an example of what we wrote about you, David, in 2012. If David Patterson, Nick Horswell, and Jonathan Durden were still working at PhD, they would have had to add another letter to the agency acronym W. When his eyes open wide like docs in Back to the Future, you know he's on to a good thing. So with that, David, how are you and where does lockdown find you today? Thank you. Yeah, I thought that was incredibly uh, generous at the time and uh, even more so now. So thank you. Uh, yes, I'm at home uh, down on the south coast, uh, have been for months and uh, it's a nice sunny day today. So uh, that's something at least. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Nice to be on. Thanks for having me. Oh, wonderful. And uh, is Twitter still saying that um, you can basically work from home for as long as you want to is that still the plan yes we're all very much at home uh for the uh foreseeable um we haven't opened any offices yet uh globally um and we're looking at, at doing that at some point but i don't think it'll be anytime soon i'm very excited i'm gonna go into my office for the first time in months tomorrow morning just because i need a change of scene so i'm actually really looking forward to that um <laughs> but david um tell us why why did you get into this strategy planning lark why did you get into it and what do you think makes a good planner nowadays well funny enough i i I didn't start as a planner. I started as a, a buyer. I was a press buyer. So when I started at Zenith Media in uh, what my kids refer to as the 19-somethings, um, very late 19-somethings, uh, I started as a press buyer and I didn't really know what press buying was, uh, but I absolutely loved it. Um, and I, I loved the kind of industry almost instantly in terms of just how much fun it is and how more interesting it is and what have you. Was, you know, a lot of my friends were doing very boring jobs and I was kind of fluked to this role. Um, and then I moved to uh, Mindshare after three years because I wanted to do press buying uh, on Nike, which they had as an, an account. And a couple of years after that, the uh, the planner on the account left to go and uh, live in the US and they were looking around for... Uh, someone to do the planning and a fellow called Nick Ashley who's now uh, head of media at uh, Tesco he ran the account at the time mm. and he said uh, do you fancy kind of doing a bit of this planning thing and I thought oh I'd love to kind of you know, give it a go and uh, yeah been doing it um, ever since um, and it's a it's a really fascinating role I think it's the, the one thing that I think makes a good planner is just being interested in in people and interested in in the world and what's happening in the world um, so now I feel very lucky to be doing it. We're also joined by Vera Budimlia, Chief Strategy Office uh, at Wavemaker, the WPP media agency. Uh, she's also very much a regular on our top 10 planners list. She leads the strategic media and creative thinking at the agency, having joined MEC six years ago before it was merged with Maxis to create Wavemaker. Um, now, Vera, you've got really interesting backgrounds. Not only have you worked at different agencies like MEC Saatchi, Leo Burnett, Sapient Night Pro, Nitro, forgive me. You also started your career in research for a consultancy that almost exclusively worked for the COI, what we used to call the government's advertising and marketing services unit. Um, what did that involve? I gather you involved testing out government communications. Oh, God, it was just the best job in the world. Can you imagine? I left university and um, I just kind of fell into this job. I saw it advertised and thought, oh, that sounds quite interesting, finding out people's opinions about 
TV ads, which is what I thought it was all about. I was really lucky. The agency basically tested out qualitatively and quantitatively uh, most, of, most of the comms that the COI produced. Um, so I spent most of my life at that time, um, driving up and down motorways and sitting in people's living rooms, researching ads for anything from, you know, kind of anti-drug campaigns, AIDS awareness, tax evasion, absent fathers, really juicy subjects. It was absolutely brilliant. And I, you know, we also, we kind of talk about escaping the kind of London bubble. Well, I, I definitely did that. I learned a lot about people. Um, and I guess that is a really good foundation for being a planner. Interesting. Um, so you both come from different perspectives, um, which should make for a really interesting conversation. And I wanted to bring you on both to the show today because it's been a big year for media, obviously, with COVID-19 supercharging lots of digital trends, which might have been there before and have really come to the fore this year in the way that we're using e-commerce and the way that we're using online entertainment. Um, so you've both done a lot of work this year, um, which we'll get into. Um, firstly, if I can start with you, Vera, um, last week, um, Wavemaker, you unveiled this this positioning that you've come out with this year called positive provocation. Um, briefly explain what it's all about and why Wavemaker thinks it's important. Um, well, in a nutshell, um, it's really just a, um, it's a new way to drive exceptional growth for brands. Growth is, you know, the name of the game and, um, and growth has become increasingly more difficult to come across. If you, if you look at the industry over the past hundred years, there's been a whole host of different kind of marketing and communication approaches, whether that's kind of above the line or below the line. You know, we're all much more comfortable thinking about precision marketing at scale but, you know, none of these approaches on their own will be enough for brands who really want to drive that exceptional growth because it's going to be a really turbulent decade of change ahead of us. And, you know, without wanting to sound too gloomy, um, we know that things are about to get very tough indeed. And the Institute for Fiscal Studies, you know, they're suggesting that, that we can't just back the British consumer in terms of getting us out of this hole automatically. Um, as we have historically, you know, consumer confidence and the kind of spending patterns that we've had in the past may take many, many years to return. And we can't just blame the pandemic for these woes. Um, the the growth, growth has been really quite hard to come by for some time. And some research that we, we've done um, looking at some analysis shows that, you know, over 90% of brands in a 10-year period grew less than 5% in market share. So if you do want that exceptional growth, um, it's gonna require uncomfortable change. And that's what we talk about in positive provocation, which is prodding every part of the kind of marketing landscape to find new, new opportunities to grow. Um, but that does mean that you know you have to be willing to change things up. You know, it's no point recommending what you did last year, this year, or the year before. You've got to think, really listen to customers, really listen to clients, understand all parts of the client offer, and um, only then will you get to kind of different kind of questions. And once you get to different kind of questions to answer. That, that is the trick. And then you, we can use our combined skills and we have a brilliant operating system to get to better answers. So, yeah, the thought leadership pieces that we published last week are really just an example of the kind of 
how we're provoking current thinking. And we, we covered seven topics this time round, and there'll be more to come. And we looked at things like innovation and radical partnerships and how they can provoke growth. We also looked at how brands need to be more mythical. And another area that's really close to my heart is about slowing down so that we can understand people better. Well, let's get into um, a couple of those. For example, um, you just mentioned this provocation around slowing down and understanding people. Now, that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Surely we're everything's getting faster and faster, and we, you know, people talk about being always on, and if we're if we're li- increasingly living digital lives, um, surely it's all about speeding up. So what's, what's, what's about slowing down? If you want to stand, understand people's lives, it takes time. Um, understanding the whole person, the whole community, that, just won't, that won't happen overnight. It's not something you can uncover looking at a weekly spreadsheet. And David from Twitter, you've, you've done a lot of work, uh, you as in Twitter, you've done a lot of work in the past couple of years, um, at least, um, trying to... Um, find out more about Twitter users and their behavior. Um, this thing about slowing down, as I said, it seems counterintuitive on the face of it. Um, in the context of COVID, what have you guys been seeing in terms of how has user behavior changed this year? Now we've mo- a lot of people have been working and entertaining themselves at home more than any before. Yeah, I think that's the key question that everyone's um, trying to answer, aren't they? And I think just to follow on from what Vera says, we always advise people uh, to kind of use Twitter sort of conversation data as part of a, a balanced diet of uh, insight, if you like. Uh, it's not, of course, the only thing you need. Um, and you know, I'll be the first to say that you should be doing all of the things that Vera talked about. Um, and it would be you know, particularly dangerous just to kind of assume that just because something's been talked about on Twitter, that reflects everything that's going on in the world. But at the same time, you can get really interesting insights into kind of what people are saying, particularly for certain kind of communities. So uh, over the last year, we've done uh, work on kind of black Twitter in the UK, on LGBTQ plus Twitter um, in the UK and again you know, as part of a holistic overall picture it does give you some really fascinating uh, insights. I think the key thing um, to answer your question Omar that we've really noticed uh, this year is that kind of move towards a kind of collective we in terms of how we think about people and I think again that's important from a planning perspective. Um, don't think of your kind of audience as, as they, it's very much we, you're likely to have lots of things in common with um, this this audience, you know, whether, whether you necessarily think you do or not. And certainly um, what we've been doing this year is uh, a piece of research called History and the Tweeting, uh, rather grandly. Um, and we knew that obviously you know, people will be having newer conversations since lockdown. And we identified uh, seven behaviours uh, that have either emerged or accelerated as a result of lockdown. And of course, that's something that we've all lived through and therefore perhaps some of the behaviours aren't all that surprising and they affect people in different ways uh, depending on their own kind of lived experience. But I think we've hit on a couple that are definitely going to be around for quite a long time, certainly for the kind of medium to long term, which were probably always there but have been accelerated by um, the situation we've all found ourselves in. And one of those uh, relates to uh, mental health, uh, which is often referred to as the kind of the, the epidemic within the pandemic. Um, and for example, with that, we've seen a huge increase in people now coming to Twitter to talk about their mental health who just weren't in the conversation before. So a third of people who are now talking about their mental health on Twitter weren't talking about it at all pre-lockdown. So it was almost as if that kind of shared experience 
has allowed new people to kind of say, yeah, I'm really you know, struggling today or I'm not feeling so good or I'm feeling like this and what have you. And, and, and so that's something we've definitely seen. And I guess that's both a concern, but it's also a positive if people are talking about it. And then I think the one that probably has the really kind of long reaching implications is around this concept of kind of messy ethics uh, that we've kind of witnessed and seen borne out on Twitter. So I think we've always had a quite a complex and messy relationship with ethics as people, if we're being really honest. Uh, we kind of you know want to uh, strive to behave in certain ways, but it's not always easy uh, when life gets in the way. And I think probably the last few months have been the most pragmatic time that any of us have ever lived through in lots of different ways. You know, that um, conversations, for example, about, uh, you know, PPE and the effects of the environment on PPE, you kind of see those bubbling up on Twitter with people saying, I know I need to protect myself, but what about the, the, the environmental implications of all of this? And other people saying, well, actually, I haven't got time to concern myself with that, or, you know, I'm not in a position where I can even think about that. I just need to get through the day. So we're seeing that um, born out on Twitter. And I think we're also seeing brands uh, becoming involved in that kind of conversation, not necessarily on purpose, but being caught up in that type of conversation as well. So a, a good example being uh, the conversation about Black Lives Matter um, and lots of brands becoming involved in that conversation, whether they meant to be or once they found themselves in the conversation, having to think about, well, how do they navigate around that and, and sort of join in the conversation that way? That's that's really interesting, particularly on the, the mental health aspects, because that's been a huge area of concern as everyone has had to increasingly work and spend all the more time at home we still don't know frankly what the full impact of mental health um, will have been when all this that's absolutely right return yeah. to some kind of normalcy um when twitter yeah you know, when twitter um does research like this how how much responsibility does it feel on um i suppose putting its finger on the scale um you know when when you collect all this data and you see that we see a spike in people coming onto the platform to talk about their mental health there are obviously things that twitter can do in terms of collecting that data and doing something with it such as um flagging it to an organization like calm for example off the top of my head um or or building more things into the platform to improve mental well-being for people yes so we work with lots of different sort of mental health organizations both formally and informally so yes as you mentioned calm and various other um charities we work on different sort of mental health initiatives uh with um, and then I think it's just ensuring that people are having a, a positive experience on Twitter. And we call that as a kind of an umbrella category, health, uh, which encompasses so many different aspects of kind of what goes on on Twitter. Um, ensuring people have as, um, access to all the correct information from a public health perspective when it comes to something like COVID. So we've introduced um, context around tweets to ensure that people are getting the right information. We have a curation team who work very, very hard on making sure that people get access to the right information and also get access to um, any sort of help they might need around certain stories where that's um, required. Um, so it's a, it's a number of different things. It's kind of hard to be too specific about one thing, but it's a sort of a number of different initiatives. It's really interesting. Um, and Vera, let's move on to um, the subjects you also mentioned about innovation and partnerships. Um, you, you called it radical innovation. I, explain what you mean by that. As I said earlier, it's the focus has got to be around growth. So innovation-led growth um, comes from when brands properly kind of free themselves up from existing orthodoxies around, you know, their category or their product or even just their business model, the way they operate, and take a proper, fresh look and trying to 
I guess, come to answers to the frustrations that some of their customers have on um, the way things operate right now. And again, that comes from listening to customers. But for a lot of companies, um, starting again is really, really hard. You know, they often don't know where to start and um, they end up participating in what Sarah Sorter, our head of innovation, calls um, tech tourism, which is just essentially... Um, incremental improvements where you know you might stick a stick a chatbot on the plan or <laughs> you might kind of work with a startup but it fails and you don't try again you, you kind of toy with innovation on the sidelines if you like but um but if you do that um you won't kind of push through the boundaries of what's difficult which is kind of processes and the inefficiency at the beginning and before you get to a, a really good result they often just kind of fail it does take courage to kind of start from scratch and you know you do need to allow teams to kind of ask really provocative questions at the beginning of the kinds of problems they want to solve and it does kind of require a real kind of shift in mindset and culture for a business to really embrace that because failures will happen along the way and you know only from those failures will you learn and get to kind of think something really radical and that's why I guess um, innovation tends to happen in smaller businesses. I mean, it can happen with established brands. Um, you know, I think, you know, IKEA is a great example of an established brand that is constantly looking to kind of innovate for their customer in either in terms of the kind of the customer experience or the product itself. I mean, I thought the, the, the AR filters that, you know, you can suddenly see the sofa that you want to buy actually in your living room is brilliant. I mean, what a useful piece of innovation. My favourite example is MasterCard card example, where they have um, have a, a strong partnership now with a fintech startup called Economy. And essentially, they've come together to try and do their bit for climate change. So essentially, it's a, an easy-to-use mobile banking service that lets users kind of track and understand uh, the carbon footprint they're creating by the products that they're buying through MasterCard. And then on the back of that, customers are then kind of shown examples how they can offset the carbon footprint as a result. You know, MasterCard, have, it's been so successful for them that they've actually taken some equity investment in the economy. But I, I wonder whether we're constantly obsessed with the West Coast, though. You know, I just feel that you know, all our inspiration comes from the kind of innovations from kind of tech first solutions. And yet, you know, we should turn our heads from left to right on the global map and start looking at China. The fastest growing brands out there um, are the fastest growing on the planet. Um, you know, Alibaba and Tencent are really stealing the march on the West, um, because they don't just innovate in terms of their product, but they also play with something that we really struggle to play with in the West, and that's the, the business model itself, how people pay for stuff. So the Chinese will happily experiment with, you know, renting clothes. I mean, that, that concept of renting clothes, they had that years ago. Um, they're charging for books by the chapter, podcasts by the episode. They're selling luxury cars on a social platform. So there is so, so much fantastic innovation um, out there to learn from, build on. Uh, but you do have to be brave and you do have to be prepared to fail.
In terms of how a brand behaves on Twitter, David, should should a brand see itself as a person and interact with other people as a person? Or should they be mindful that they are an organization um, and refer to themselves in, you know, as our, we, etc.? Um, because I, I remember the example from earlier this year where I can't remember what led to it, but um, Yorkshire Tea, somebody was shouting at Yorkshire Tea and their response was you're literally shouting at tea and it was really funny and everyone applauded Yorkshire Tea for doing that but I after thinking about it, it made me a bit uncomfortable because I thought well you, they they are happy on one hand to act as if they're a person but on the other hand when somebody you know has an argument with them as people tend to do on Twitter frankly then they they turn it around and say oh you're, you're talking to a brand that isn't really a person you know how, how would you advise brands? And it depends on what your strategy is as, as a business and how you want your brand to be perceived. I think in the case of um, Yorkshire Tea, you're often cited as one of the better um, examples of brands on Twitter. That was a kind of a, a kind of funny moment. I think it was uh, Sue, you're shouting at tea, wasn't it? It became a bit of a meme uh, on Twitter. But they're actually, you know, they're very consistent in what they do. Um, and actually, on the kind of flip side of that, they one of the brands I talked about earlier who were involved in the conversation around um black lives matter somebody tweeted them and said uh you know um or somebody sent out a tweet saying i I hope that yorkshire tea don't get involved in this uh black lives matter stuff because i'd have to stop uh buying the product and they sent a very clear response uh to the person just saying please don't buy our tea again uh we're taking some time to educate ourselves and plan proper action before we post uh, we stand against racism. So they make it very clear where they stand, but also making it clear that they've still got work to do to think about exactly what the most appropriate response for them is. And I thought that was a very good example because they weren't getting caught up in the kind of, uh, you know, the emotion of it and the kind of short term drama of it. They were saying, we're very clear, you know, we don't want you to buy a product if that's how you feel. Um, we stand against racism, but we're going to take some time, uh, back to Vera's point about slowing down, uh, to educate ourselves and to plan a proper action before we post. And I thought that was a very sort of mature response. Obviously, behind all of these um, kind of corporate accounts, there are there are people um, and there are certain brands who want to bring that to the forefront. But let's also be clear, there are lots of brands who actually want to behave quite a lot like advertisers on Twitter. They want to put great product launches out in front of people. Like, you know, take the you know, Christmas TV ads that we've just had, for example. Nearly all of them launched on Twitter because they want the conversation to happen about their TV ad and about the video. But, and they want people to see the video, but they don't necessarily want to get into a, a big sort of back and forth about you know, the conversation around it. So increasingly, as, they, as you see a kind of a, a maturation of brands on Twitter, it's not the case that you have to work in a certain way uh, to be successful. And on the theme of innovation, Twitter has recently launched Fleets, <laughs> which um, looks like um, you've you've made a conscious decision not to call it Twitter Stories because it looks <laughs> it looks very much like the the story format that people will know from Instagram and other platforms. Um, firstly, why why do you call it Fleets and um, What's it all about? Heard that said, actually. Um, well, fleets rhymes with tweets, so it's nice rhyming. Um, basically, what it's all about. This is what I was talking about earlier, kind of an example of, of strategy meeting um, innovation or execution. And it's a really important point because I hear what you're saying on uh, there are similarities to other products. We are really, really clear strategically on what Twitter is and its role within the social media um, you know, sphere, if you like. You know, Twitter is the best place to see what's happening, to share what's happening with the world. Right? Um, and that's been really, it sounds really simple, but it's been really useful for us in terms of differentiating Twitter from other platforms. It's less kind of 
look at me and, and more kind of look at this. Um, and we spent a long time focusing on how do we help people to see what's happening um, and recognising it's not always easy if you're a lighter user of Twitter to come in and immediately be caught up to date with what's going on. So we've changed uh, the home timeline, for example, to put in tweets that you might have missed when you were away. Um, people could turn it off or have it on. Uh, we've introduced the Explore tab. We've got a team of curators who are there to bring people the best tweets, basically, and do the heavy lifting for you. Earlier in the year, we introduced topics so you can choose to follow advertising on Twitter or marketing on Twitter, and we'll put the tweets about that in your timeline without you necessarily having to follow every uh, creative director and media planner yourself. Um, so things like that we've done. But the um, the other aspect of that is helping people share what's happening, which is more the kind of conversational side. And recognising that actually to a lot of people emotionally, um, sending a tweet is quite a high bar because it's an open and, pla and public platform. And do I necessarily want to share this um, thing with the world for the rest of time uh, when, you know, it's just an observation about uh, a telly that I happen to be watching. Um, and so that's why we brought in fleets is effectively a, a, an experiment really to see whether people... Um, who aren't necessarily heavy tweeters are more comfortable sharing um, fleets with people than they are with tweets. So it's not really aimed at the, isn't at all aimed at people who are already tweeting heavily um, because they have a, a, a means of expression. It's actually a way of getting all those people who are coming to Twitter every single day and actually yeah, really enjoying Twitter, but aren't necessarily sending tweets themselves. So that's effectively the kind of the, the thinking uh, behind fleet. Um, Vera, do you use Twitter? Do you use social media? Well, um, big confession here. So I, I use it for work. I am on LinkedIn, um, but I, I do have accounts on all the big platforms, but under various pseudonyms, uh, different names, gender, ages. Ooh. I don't, I don't use social media in my private life at all. I'm quite a private person. I don't know, the constant passive scrolling and texting. I just don't get anything out of that. But I, at the same time, though, I do think that things are about to change and perhaps um, the next kind of generation of social media will be something that I'll be quite into. Um, you know, I'm reading um, Tim Sweeney talking about, you know, his his view of the world and how he's going to take on epic games to another level. So... I mean, he's already doing some interesting stuff in Fortnite, um, the Travis Scott example. Um, but there's going to be many more examples of that where you'll be able to go and hang out for a whole night in Fortnite. And you might not even play a game. You might watch a film or attend a gig. That, for me, is an interesting concept for uh, where social media could go. I love the idea that now on Peloton, you can do a workout and hang out with your friends at the same time. So you're doing something. Um, Pinterest actually have just announced that they're teaming up with Zoom so that you can meet your creator or take a class in something that you're interested in. If you can um, hang out with the people who can help you create that and you're with your mates doing it, I mean, that's that's pretty cool, I think. Um, you know, no longer just scrolling and texting, but you're actually in in a space where you're with your friends doing something interesting. David, um, Vera makes a fascinating point about having added value when you're interacting with people, whether it's a shared activity or playing a game. And what I can't, what I always think, what always comes back to my mind is on a platform like Twitter, where, you know, you're, you've always, it's always been an open platform. There are, as you mentioned, there are controls to limit who can reply to your tweets, etc. But 
how do you square that circle between having a platform where people can find new people, have conversations with people they wouldn't necessarily talk to, but also this problem about, you know, if you close people off, creating these filter bubbles and have people just talk to people that have the same views as them and you're just leading to ever more division of society. How, how do you square that? That's a good question. I think you've got to be careful not to lump all social media in together. Um, and I think relative to some of the others, I think fil- the filter bubble problem is kind of uh, less of a problem on Twitter than it is on, on other platforms. Um, I saw somebody describe um, uh, politics or political advertising on on Facebook the other day as it's like politics on blind CC. Um, in that you can sort of discreetly target messages to different people based on the communities they're in. That isn't really Twitter. It's, uh, you know, we have lots of communities that kind of overlap with each other um, and lots of different ways to, to kind of access what's happening in the world, as I say, that we all share and have in common, like the home timeline, like explore, that kind of stuff. So it's very difficult work. It's possible, um, but you don't, I think the filter bubble problem isn't necessarily one that I would levy at Twitter I think clearly we have issues that we are focusing on around ensuring that the conversation, um, that people feel um, safe and happy to join in conversation. And that's you know, our, our biggest priority as a business, um, candidly, and as, as a product is about making sure that, um, you know, people feel that they can safely join in the conversation on Twitter and aren't having their, their voices silenced. But I would also put in perspective that, you know, often sort of political Twitter and news Twitter is the one that a lot of people kind of think about um, first. But there's so much more um, kind of um, humanity to Twitter than I think Twitter often gets credit for. Uh, And when Vera was talking there about, you know, having a shared experience with friends that goes beyond sort of scrolling, effectively what what I'm reminded of there is Twitter at its very best. Um, Literally this morning uh, we had a, a... meeting i say call it a meeting uh with a fellow who runs a, a twitter account called um 80s aging and it's basically a tribute to badly aging 80s footballers um and it's he's basically been doing an fa cup knockout uh, on twitter um over the last few weeks of lockdown while we've all been in lockdown too and the final was today um and we had a quick chat with him and he says Do you know what it's just been joyous seeing how people have responded to it. So I just put out these Twitter polls asking people which person you, do you think looks oldest? And people have responded in this most incredibly, uh, you know, warm, humorous and interesting way. They've all kind of got involved. They've all had their roles, um, you know, and, and the responses we're getting saying, yeah, this is exactly what the world needs. This is the most fun I've ever had on Twitter. This is what Twitter was um, invented for, um, you know, people thanking this person for bringing them together in these sort of depressing times and talk about what amazing fun it is. So I would, it's a big part of the role, really, making sure that the kind of the more prominent, um, easy to think of things when you think about Twitter, you know, you think about, uh, you know, some people think about you know, Trump, clearly. Um, yes, of course, that's there. And yes, that's what the media focuses on. But a lot of it is actually about humour, light relief, helping each other get through it. Um, you know, warmth, support, all that kind of stuff. We need to do a better job in letting people know about that. And we're looking at doing that early next year. We've got a very exciting uh, research project we're working on, which is going to try and quantify some of that. 
because I think it's it's quite overdue. We'll look out for that. Do come back and tell us all about it. Um, and um, very quickly before we go, David, on Fridays uh, you run a blankety blank game, yeah. don't you, on your um, your Twitter feed? Um, how did that come about? And how many people take part in it nowadays? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and that's an example, I think, of what I was saying, which is something that's ridiculous and silly, and and um, not absolutely not about what's kind of happening in the world. It sort of takes off, and it, it's just a lot of fun because people get involved. Um, it came about because I was on a train back when we used to go to the office and I had a long old commute and I look forward to renewing that one day um, and I was it was the week that Terry Wogan had died and I just put out a tweet about how I was sad that he was um, died but I loved Blankety Blank and didn't really want to have a game and then just put out a word and about five or six people replied with guesses um, and it kind of um, escalated from there people saying we should do this every week etc um, briefly we did do it every week for about a year um, and it pretty much wiped out my Fridays. <laughs> um, so, and I ran out of words. Um, so I thought we'll stop doing it every week, but we do some specials every now and then. I say we, uh, people, it's it's Twitter. It's it's a, I can't really explain it any more than that, Omar. It's, it's a, a ridiculous uh, thing that I have no exit strategy for. Um, so if any listeners <laughs> have any advice other than deleting my account, <laughs> I'd love to hear them. Not having an exit strategy is, sounds like me when I'm planning these podcast episodes. But I am, I am going to let you go, you guys go now. Um, um, David Vera, thank you so much um, for coming on the show today and please come back again soon. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the campaign podcast. Thanks to David and Vera for joining me today. And thank you also to Lindsay Riley for editing this episode. Please do subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss future episodes and check out recent ones such as last week's Christmas ads special hosted by our creativity and culture editor, Brittany Kiefer. And of course, remember, you can get all the latest industry stories and see the UK's latest ad campaigns on campaignlive.co.uk. Until then, please stay safe wherever you are, listener, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.